Well, it's a real joy and privilege to bring forth the word this morning. Our study in the Psalms so far this summer has been so rich, and I pray that this morning our hearts would be drawn to worship Jesus from the Psalm before us. We'll be looking at Psalm 110, and I've titled this message, Who is Worthy? But before we get into the Psalm, let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we come expectantly to your word, asking that your spirit would be our teacher. Father, we want to love your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that our hearts would be drawn to love him from Psalm 110. It's in his name we pray, amen. In Revelation 5, the apostle John recorded a vision of the heavenly throne room. He saw God the Father sitting on his throne, and in the Father's right hand was a scroll with seven seals. The scroll was the title deed to this earth, and the seven seals were seven judgments that must be unleashed in order to take this world back from Satan. And the one who can open this scroll and break the seals would be the worthy heir of this world, the one who can take back this world from Satan. And John heard a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And John said, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now think about the implications of that statement for just a moment. If no one was worthy to go to the right hand of the Father and take that scroll from his hand, then Satan would forever be in charge of this world as the unrightful ruler of this world. But then John was told this, weep, no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is this man who is worthy to open the scroll? Jesus. And why is he worthy? Because the lion became a lamb the king became a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the worthy heir of this world. He can take back this world from the evil one. Worthy is King Jesus to receive honor and glory and blessing. I love Revelation 5 because it lifts up Jesus. I love the song that we sang a couple weeks ago, Is He Worthy? Because it's based on Revelation 5, right? And it lifts high the Lord Jesus Christ. But did you know that undergirding John's awesome heavenly vision in Revelation 5 was a psalm written over a thousand years before? In the background of John's heavenly vision is Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 answers this question. Who is 
worthy to take back this world from the evil one. So let's read Psalm 110 and follow with me as I read. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And today we are going to see that Jesus, God's king and priest, is the worthy heir of this world. Worship him. And from verses 1 to 3, we see that Jesus is the exalted king. Jesus is the exalted king, verses 1 to 3. Look at verse 1. David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, Now, David was allowed to overhear a divine conversation. The two words for Lord here in verse 1 are two different Hebrew words. The first Lord is the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And the second Lord is Adonai, which means master. So David says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, my master. And notice that David personalizes Adonai. He's not just the Lord. He is my Lord. He is my master. Now, as soon as I read this, I I think, stop, time out, wait a moment. Who is David's Adonai? Who is David's Lord? Now, who would David have considered his master? Now, remember, David... Um, had been promised by God regarding one of his sons. God said this, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The throne of his kingdom forever. One of David's sons would be the king in Jerusalem for eternity. When David calls someone my Lord, there's really only one person who fits. That's the Messiah his son, who is also his Lord. In fact, Jesus himself understood that David was speaking of the Christ, of the Messiah, in Psalm 110. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 22, verses 42 to 43, What do you think about the Christ? David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, So in Psalm 110, verse 1, Yahweh is speaking to the Messiah, David's Lord. Now look at the command that Yahweh gives to the Messiah. He says, sit at my right 
hand. Now, in the biblical world, if a king commanded someone to come and sit at his right hand, the king was conferring upon that person the highest honor, the highest dignity that the king could give to him. In fact, this honored person could now participate in the rule of the king. He was the king's appointed ruler. Now, this isn't just any king who is speaking. This is Yahweh, God himself. So think about this. God himself invites the Messiah to come to his heavenly throne and sit at his right hand. Has there ever been another king in the history of the world whom God has invited to sit at his right hand, at the right hand of his throne? No. Not even the greatest kings of Israel, David, Solomon, or Josiah, were given this unparalleled honor. Not even an angel, right? Not Satan before he fell, Gabriel or Michael, was given this exalted position. Who is worthy to sit at the right hand of God? Jesus, the Messiah. Which really begs the question, doesn't it? How can the Messiah, a man from the line of David, sit at God's right hand? No man can see God's face and live. No mere man can participate in the divine rule, for we are finite. To attempt to shoulder the divine rule would crush us. We would be consumed by the holiness of God. But Jesus is no mere man. He can sit at the right hand of God. In fact, notice that Yahweh is already speaking to the Messiah before he is born. The the Messiah already exists before he has been born. Why? Because he is God himself. And Jesus in this psalm saw evidence of his deity. He told the Pharisees, If David calls him the Christ Lord, how is he his son? What Jesus was saying is that the Christ, the Messiah, is David's Lord because he is God, but he is also David's son because God became man. So perhaps you're here this morning and you're not convinced of who Jesus is. Maybe you think that Jesus is a is a supreme teacher, a teacher with good morals and ethics. But God? No. I invite you to look at this verse. Look at verse 1 and be convinced that Jesus is no mere man. He is God who became man. And look at the, com- uh, the command and also what, what Yahweh will do for the Messiah in verse 1. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, as soon as you hear this, your mind should be drawn to Genesis 3.15, the promise of the snake crusher, where God declared that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of Satan. The evil one, the serpent who deceived the woman, 
the serpent who led the human race into sin, would be crushed under the foot of the promised one. And when David writes here of, of God's promise to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, what God is saying to the Messiah is, you are going to be the one who will crush the head of the serpent. You are going to be the long-awaited promised seed of the woman. Now, Genesis 3.15, it undergirds this psalm. As, as Psalm 110 is in the background of Revelation 5, I think Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is really in the background of this psalm. How can we as mankind go back to paradise? It is through this man who sits at the right hand of God. And Satan will stand no chance against the Messiah. For not only does the Messiah fight against him, Yahweh himself will fight on behalf of his son. The one who can conquer the evil one can remove this world from his domination. We can go back to paradise. And who is worthy to conquer Satan? Who is, who is the worthy heir to this world? King Jesus. Now hear me, if you do not bow the knee to King Jesus and submit your life to him now, you will be crushed. For you are not just opposing Jesus, you are opposing God himself who fights on his behalf. God the Father will dominate and destroy all the enemies of his Son. And this will be your end if you do not surrender to King Jesus. For God the Father has purposed. He has determined that his son will rule and there will be no rebels. There will be no rivals to his son. Now verse 2 also tells us the, the location of Messiah's Remember, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are in the background of this psalm. And as Adam and Eve ruled the world from Eden, so now the Messiah will rule the world from Zion. Verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now Zion, or Jerusalem, will be the capital city of Messiah's kingdom. And just as God commissioned Adam to rule Eden, God will send the mighty scepter of his son from Zion. And Zion will be the renewed paradise where God will once again meet with mankind. And the Messiah will be a second Adam who will restore what we have lost. Now David, as he's writing this, is so so overcome by what he hears that he breaks forth in a declaration to the Messiah at the end of verse 2. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rise above your enemies and conquer them. Beloved, when I, when I think about God the Father, Finally, and one day, sending his 
son, who is now seated at his right hand, telling the son, now, son, it is the day. Now is the day when you will rule, go forth and rule in the midst of your enemies. I can't but, but help and, and cry out to Jesus. Jesus, come. Come now and rule. Come and conquer your enemies. I am tired of seeing the wicked rule on this earth. Restore righteousness and justice and the fear and love of God on earth. Remove the wicked, banish sickness and disease and death. Let your blessing flow to every corner of this earth. Come, King Jesus, come. And I trust that is the cry of your heart as well as you read these verses. And when David cries out, rule, rule in the midst of your enemies, the word that he uses is the Hebrew word rada. Rada, rule in the midst of your enemies. It's the same word that God used when he told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1:28, have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word for have dominion there is the word rada. Now, why does David use the same word that God used when he commissioned Adam to rule in Eden? I believe that David used that word because he he was saying that Messiah is going to restore mankind's rule as God's kings on earth, the rule that we partially forfeited through the fall. And what David is saying here in verse 2 is who is worthy to rule where we have failed, the Messiah, King Jesus, who is worthy to restore the paradise that we have lost, King Jesus. Now, while Jesus is going to crush his enemies, to subdue them underneath his feet, he will rule with joy over those who bow the knee to him. Look at verse 3. David writes, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. What David is saying, on the day of Jesus' power, his people will, will offer themselves as a free will offering to him. It reminds me of, of Romans chapter 12, where, where Paul encourages us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And I think perhaps what Paul has in mind is Psalm 110, verse 3, that the people of God themselves become a living sacrifice to God. And the word, perhaps, that I love the most here in this verse is the word freely. Your people will offer themselves freely. You and I, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, will offer ourselves not begrudging, begrudgingly to Christ. We will not grumble as we serve Jesus. No, we will joyfully, gladly, and willingly say, Jesus, my life is yours. Take it. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that encourages me because as much as I try to obey Christ, I fight against my flesh as much as I try to to offer my life as a living sacrifice to him. I fight. But one day, 
I will be able to offer my life to Jesus and say, Jesus, here is my life. Take it. Unhindered by sin, I'll be able to offer myself to Jesus. And I think we see in verse 3 hints of the resurrection, right? That we will be a, a living sacrifice to Christ. And David also notes the clothing of the Messiah's people. We will offer ourselves on the day of his power in holy garments. We will wear holy garments. Holiness will flow from every, flow to every part of our lives, even to our clothing. We will be priests, as it were, in holy garments approaching the Messiah to serve him. Now, if you read Revelation 5, when the angels praise Jesus, he's, they say that, that Jesus has ransomed from every tribe, tongue, language, and people, a people for God, and he makes them a kingdom and priests to God. We will be priests to God. And I think in verse 3, when it talks about us wearing holy garments, we will be as priests to God, serving him. Messiah's people will not only be holy, they will also be innumerable. At the end of verse 3, there's this mysterious and strange, strange portion of verse 3, where it says, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, as I was studying this chapter this week, I was puzzled and perplexed, and I was pondering over this verse and just thinking, Lord, I, I need your help on this one. I I understand your people will offer themselves freely. I understand the holy garments, but, but where does the dew come from? Right? Where, where, what does this mean? And if you have the ESV, the margin note itself says the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. It's like, well, that's a lot of help, right? Um, <laughs> but as I was thinking and studying and, and, and reading some commentaries, I think what David is getting at here is that in the day of Messiah's power, in verse 2, when he rules with a mighty scepter, he will be in his youth. You see the reference to the youth of the Messiah, the dew of your youth will be yours. I don't think that's talking simply about Messiah's chronological age. I think it's talking about him ruling in the strength and the power of his youth. And in the strength of his youth, he will have the dew that comes from the womb of the morning. As you go out in the morning and perhaps check on your garden or go to your car to go to work in the, at the crack of dawn, you see tiny, innumerable drops of dew everywhere. And I think what David is saying is that Messiah's people in verse 3 who offer themselves freely to him will be as many as the drops of dew in the morning. They will be filled with life and joy as water, as the drops of dew in the morning. It makes me think of God's promise to Abraham that his people would be as many as, what? The stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Messiah's people will be innumerable. And even as you read Revelation, the book of Revelation, it talks about an innumerable multitude who gather to worship King Jesus. Now, did you see in verses 2 and 3 that there really are only two kinds of people in this 
world. The enemies of Jesus and his obedient people. In verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. And in verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely. So I think it's fitting at this moment to pause and to ask you, every single one of you, who are you? Are you an enemy of the Messiah? Or are you his obedient follower? And you might think, an enemy of Jesus? No, I'm not an enemy of Jesus. I mean, I respect him, but as far as obey him, I'm not his obedient follower, but I don't know if that makes me his enemy. But in verse 3, it says that his people submit to him willingly and obediently. If you do not offer yourselves in willing obedience to him, then you are in rebellion against him. And if you are in rebellion to King Jesus, then you are his enemy. For the Bible declares that we are all sinners. We are all enemies of God because we reject his rule over our lives. And if we reject his rule, then we are his enemy. And if you are living in rebellion against Jesus, you might think of yourself as free because no one is in charge of you. But you are not free. You are not free to enjoy life as God intended it. You are not free to be all that God has made you to be because you are a slave to your sin. You are not the master of your own fate because your rebellion will lead to your destruction. But if you would turn to Jesus in obedience, you would see that submission to him is not cruel slavery, but it is liberty. Submission to Jesus is freedom. For Jesus will free you from the sin that warps you and twists you and destroys you. Jesus will free you to be whom God has made you to be. You will be free to enjoy life in all of God's rich blessings as he intended them to be enjoyed. I think about the Garden of Eden, right? God gave Adam and Eve paradise to enjoy. And he said, enjoy my blessings within the confines of obedience. Outside the fence, there is pain and death. When you leave the fence of obedience, there is no joy. And when Adam and Eve left, they found that they were not free. They were slaves of sin. They were not experiencing the life the joy as God had created it to be enjoyed. This is true freedom, beloved, to reject our sin and to bow the knee to King Jesus. And I believe that the lie of Satan is this, that submission to Jesus is a miserable bondage, as if somehow God were against us, withholding something from us, But no, the most miserable bondage in the world is to live in rebellion against God. 
And the greatest freedom in the world is the freedom to obey God. Because in obedience, there is life and blessing and joy. And as John says in 1 John, his commandments are not burdensome. Now, if that isn't enough to persuade you, to, to bow the knee to King Jesus, then I invite you to turn to, verse, to look at verse 4. For in verse 4, we see that the exalted King Jesus is also the great high priest. The exalted King Jesus is the great high priest. Now, it's vital that we understand that verse 4 is the center, the focus of this psalm. The first three verses and the last three verses focus on the kingship of the Messiah. But the crown jewel, the centerpiece, the, sh the shining star of this psalm is verse 4. For here we see that Jesus is the great high priest. Look at verse 4. David writes, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is the second divine conversation that David is allowed to overhear between the father and the son. And this declaration is more forceful than the first. David says Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. The God who cannot lie, the God who is truth swears by himself and determines that nothing can change his mind. Nothing can change his mind about his son being a priest. Not even the prayers and the pleas of his son in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now think about this. God the Son, on the night before he dies, approaches God the Father in prayer. He pours out his heart to him and says, Father, if it is at all possible, take this cup from me. He's saying, Father, I am afraid. I don't want to die. I don't want to receive the sin of this world. Not because I don't want to save humanity, because the wrath of God is terrifying. Take this cup away from me. And the Father says, no. Why? Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And see what he says. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this, my friends, is good news. Because if Jesus was just a king, you and I, would be in serious trouble. If Jesus was just a king, we would be crushed by him because you and I are sinners born as enemies of God. You see, we need more than a ruler. We need a redeemer. We need more than a king. We need a savior. We need a priest who can stand between God and us, a priest who can deal with the problem of sin that is within us. You might think, a, a priest? A priest? I don't need a priest. Isn't that a Catholic idea? We don't need priests. 
But friends, you do need a priest. Not just any priest. You need the Messiah, God the Son, as your priest. Now let's look at several facets of Messiah's priesthood in verse 4. First, we see that Jesus' priesthood is eternal. The Father tells the Son, you are a priest for how long? Forever. Now I want us to think like a Jewish person reading this psalm in the time of of David. And and the, the author of Hebrews has so much to say about the priesthood of the Messiah, but but I don't want to run right away to the book of Hebrews. I want us to think about a Jewish person reading this psalm, perhaps even like King David as he penned this psalm. And as I hear David say of Yahweh's declaration to the Messiah, you are a priest forever, I would have thought this. Wait a second. Man, all the high priests that we've had up until this point have died. Good old Abiathar over there, he's a great high priest, but he's going to croak too, right? He's going to die. And after he dies, another high priest is going to rise in his place and do the exact same thing that he did. The discerning Jew would understand that something was insufficient, something was missing from the high priests who came from Aaron. These priests could not provide eternal salvation because they would die. And another high priest would rise in their place to do the same thing that they did. But here, God declares that the Messiah is a priest forever. No one will come after him as a high priest. And his priesthood would not terminate with his death. And he will thus provide eternal salvation to everyone he represents. Which begs the question, does it not? How is the Messiah, a man, able to provide eternal salvation to mankind? Because he is not just a man. He is the eternal God. Who is worthy to be the eternal priest? Who is worthy as the eternal priest to provide eternal salvation to those whom he represents? Jesus, the eternal God who became man to represent mankind to God. So we see that Jesus' priesthood is eternal. Second, we see that Jesus can go where no man has gone. Remember in verse 1, Yahweh told the Messiah, sit at my right hand. The Messiah goes to the right hand of God the Father. Think again, like an Old Testament Jew. You would think this. Abiathar can only go into the holy of holies. He can't go to the right hand of God. The holy of holies is just a shadow It's just a a template, it's it's a model, it's a copy of the heavenly throne room. And Abiathar can't even stay in the shadow. He can only go there once a year. We need a priest who can go to not just the Holy of Holies, 
but to the right hand of God and one who can stay there, not just go once in the year, but one who can stay there. Now, the high priests could only enter the Holy of Holies once a year because they were unholy. It was as if God was saying, you can only come into my presence for just a moment, for if you stayed longer, my holiness would consume you. The high priests were sinners. But the Messiah, God's forever priest, has been invited by God, not just into the Holy of Holies, but into his very presence. And he will not be consumed. He is holy enough to go to the right hand of God. He can stay there as a priest forever and present a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Who is worthy to go to the right hand of God as our priest? There is only one man. His name is Jesus. The holiness of God will not consume him because he is God himself. Friends, this is, this is why the incarnation was so necessary. Because no mere man can represent us to God. We need God to represent us. But we need God to become man, to represent mankind to God. Now as a Jew, from reading this, I would pick up on one glaring omission that is unstated, intentionally, I think, from this psalm. Okay, I understand the Messiah is the priest, but where is the priest's sacrifice? Every priest offers a sacrifice. Where is his sacrifice that he will present on behalf of his people so that they might be Saved. You know the answer, don't you? That Messiah, Jesus, would offer his own body as a sacrifice for sins. That is the only sacrifice that the Holy God will accept. You see, the death of Israel's high priests brought an end to their priesthood. But the death of Jesus, the eternal high priest, was the culminating act of his priesthood. His priesthood didn't end with his death. His death allowed him to go to the right hand of the Father and present his own body as a sacrifice for sins. He offered no bulls and goats. He offered no other person. He offered himself. You know what's interesting? Is that David himself knew that the Messiah would rise, would die and rise again. David said of the Messiah in Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11, says this, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now David's use of this phrase, Holy One, clues us in that David is not just speaking about himself. In what sense could David speak of himself as the 
holy one. No, no, this is not David. This is the Messiah, God himself. You will not let your holy one see corruption, but you make known to me the path of life. So the holy one, God's servant, would go to the place of the dead, but God would not abandon him there. God would make known to the Messiah the path of life. In Acts 2, verses 30 to 31, the apostle Peter says that David was not speaking about himself in Psalm 16, but of the Messiah. I believe that David knew that the Messiah, his Lord and priest, would offer his own body as a sacrifice for sins. And beloved, I I think we give so little credit to how much these Old Testament authors understood of what they were writing. I think the author of Hebrews is just picking up on what David himself understood from this psalm. And see in verse 1 of Psalm 110 that Yahweh invites the Messiah, the priest, to sit down. You might not think that's very significant, but that, that command to sit is so important because the high priests of Israel, they would go into the Holy of Holies and they would have to stand continually year after year to offer sacrifices. Their standing would indicate that their work was not completed. But God invites the Messiah to sit, as if to say, son, your work is done. Now you may sit. I think of what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is done. And I think that's why the the Catholic conception of the the priests continually offering Christ as a sacrifice for sins is such an abomination because Christ offered himself once and for all and now he sits at the right hand of the Father never to offer himself again as a sacrifice for sins because his work is finished. So we've seen that the Messiah is the eternal priest. He can go where no man has gone. And finally, Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. The Father says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, remember, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which is also Jerusalem. Salem, the word for Salem there is the word for peace, shalom. And Jerusalem was the city of peace. Melchizedek was a priest of God most high. So he was not just a king, he was a priest king who ruled in Jerusalem, the city of peace. And Abraham goes to Melchizedek after he wins his battle, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham in Genesis 14. The Messiah would be like Melchizedek, a priest king who rules in Zion, Jerusalem, the city of peace. And Messiah will be able to rule and bless Abraham's descendants, just as Abraham himself was blessed by Melchizedek. 
Beloved, we, we are in such need of blessing, right? In Adam, we are cursed. But in the second Adam, the priest king like Melchizedek, we find blessing. Now think again like an Old Testament Jew reading this psalm. The Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. He is going to be the son of David. But God says here that he's also going to be a priest. And if I'm an Old Testament Jew reading this psalm, I think, whoa, 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 time out. I see what you did there. Right? The, the priests only come from Levi. For someone from Judah to try to become a priest, when you read the Old Testament, it did not end well for them. One of the kings tries to offer incense at the altar of incense and God struck him with leprosy. But the Messiah here will be a priest and God has sworn that he will be a priest. Yahweh's provision of a priest from Judah means this, that he will do away with the restriction under the Mosaic law that only Levites could be priests. Yahweh would enter into a different covenant, a new covenant with his people, one in which the Messiah would assume the role of priest and king. As the author of Hebrews says, where there is a change in priesthood, there is also a change in the law as well. Let's look at the final point in this psalm. We've seen in verses 1 to 3 that Jesus is the exalted king. In verse 4, we see that Jesus is the great high priest. And in verses 5 to 7, we see that Jesus is the conquering king. Now David returns to the kingship of the Messiah in the final three verses. And in verses 1 and 2, Yahweh promised the conquest of Messiah's enemies. Yahweh invited the Messiah to come to his right hand and the Messiah would be the ruler of his enemies and Yahweh would conquer his enemies. And in verses 5 to 7, we see Yahweh sending the Messiah forth from his right hand to conquer those enemies. In verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. I believe the Lord here is talking about the Messiah at the right hand of the Father and he will go forth from the right hand of the Father to shatter kings on the day of his wrath. And you notice there, the day of his wrath. And as you read the, the later Old Testament prophets and in the, the New Testament, we read of the day of the Lord, the day of Messiah's anger, when he will go forth to conquer. I believe the, the concept of the day of the Lord is here in the end of verse 5, the day of the Messiah's wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. That, that word nations there is so important because, because Yahweh will send the scepter of the Messiah forth from Zion, but will Jesus stay in Jerusalem? No. He will go from Jerusalem to every corner of this world to conquer his enemies. Every inch of this world is his. Every tribe and tongue and language and people group is his. He lays claim to all. 
Every knee must bow. Every tongue must confess that he is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And this will not be a day of mercy to the rebellious, but a day of anger, a day of execution. At the end of verse 6, he will fill them with corpses, the nations. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will fill this earth with the corpses of those who reject him as king. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And remember, Genesis 1 to 3, I believe, is in the background of this psalm. The word for chiefs here in verse 6 is the word rosh or, or head. He will shatter the head over the wide earth. That should make us think of Genesis 3.15 when the Messiah will crush the head, the rosh of the serpent. And while the Messiah crushes the head of the evil one and of all who reject him, he will lift his head up in victory in verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. The note here about drinking from the brook means that as Jesus goes to conquer the nations, he will receive divine refreshment and empowerment and strength to conquer the nations. As he goes, he will drink from Yahweh's strength. He will be empowered by God himself. And as he crushes the heads of the nations, he will lift up his head in victory. Now, did you notice the, the abrupt turn, the, the vivid contrast in this psalm from verse 4 to 5 to 7? In verse 4, we read of the, the tremendous mercy and the compassion and the grace of God to sinners in Messiah, the great high priest. And then in verse five to, verses 5 to 7, we read of the day of Messiah's wrath. He will go forth to conquer all his enemies. And it's as if God is putting us at a crossroads in Psalm 110. God stands before us as if to say, you must choose. Choose this day between Jesus the Savior and Jesus the Judge. He can be your great high priest or he will crush your head. Which will it be? If you are here this morning and you are estranged from God, separated from him, and you reject his rule, there is good news for you. The day of Messiah's anger has not yet come. There remains time for you to repent of your sins, to turn from your wickedness, to leave your rebellion, and to bow the knee to King Jesus. And if you bow the knee to him, you will find him a tender and compassionate Savior. But the day of Jesus' wrath, though it is not now, it is coming. So do not say, 
Tomorrow, I'll get right with God. Five years, I'll get, in five years, I'll get right with God. On my dying deathbed, I will get right with God. You do not know when God the Father will send God the Son to crush his enemies. You do not know the day of your death. It may be today. So while there is still time, go to Jesus. His arms are open wide to you. Even now he is at the right hand of the Father telling you to come. For he has offered himself as a sacrifice for sins that the Father has accepted. And you may be forgiven of your sin, but you must bow the knee to King Jesus. You must come to him in repentance and faith. And beloved, if you do believe in Jesus, know this, that you have a great high priest, one who has passed through the heavens, who has gone to the right hand of God, who even now intercedes for you. That is a tremendous comfort to us, is it not? That one who has been tempted in every way as we are has overcome temptation and is at the right hand of God pleading on our behalf. He knows your struggles and you may go to him. And not only that, he has offered his body as a sacrifice for sins that the Father has accepted. So if you are discouraged and distraught by your sin, look to Jesus, who has conquered sin and death at the cross. And one day, our priest king is coming. He will vanquish his enemies. So do not be troubled by the turmoil in this world because the wicked have a day of reckoning coming, the day of Messiah. Who is worthy to redeem us and rule us? Who is the worthy heir of this world? His name is Jesus. Worship him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and blessing and might. For he has conquered sin. He has become a man, tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And thus he was able to offer himself as a pure and undefiled and unblemished sacrifice, one that you accept. Father, may we find in Jesus all our hope, all our comfort from sin, for he is worthy. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Beloved, may you go forth this week crying out, worthy is Jesus.